1: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 335th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off at the end of the last show, the first Corps line on McPherson's Ridge was collapsing, with the survivors of Biddle's Brigade, the Iron Brigade, and Stone's Brigade falling back to Seminary Ridge, where the battered and bloodied Federals here, south of the Chambersburg Pike, were determined to make their final stand, preparing for another Confederate advance, which wouldn't be long in coming.
1: One by one, the Union regiments drifted out of the carnage on McPherson's Ridge and took up their positions along the new seminary line. Earlier, men from Robinson's division, while being held in reserve, had used the time to throw up some makeshift breastworks here on the slope in front of Schmucker Hall, also called the Old Dorm, which was the main academic building of the Lutheran Seminary. That morning, it was from its cupola that John Buford had enjoyed an excellent view of the countryside west of Gettysburg. Now the piles of wooden fence rails, along with some nearby stone walls, offered a welcome place for the 1st Corps soldiers to turn and fight again. Meanwhile, some of Buford's Union cavalry, troopers from Gamble's Brigade, moved into position to cover the new line's left flank.
0: While the Federals caught their breath on Seminary Ridge and braced for the next enemy onslaught, Heath's Confederates halted atop McPherson's Ridge. They were utterly spent from the fierce fight to gain that prize and would do no more fighting that day. However, through their thinned ranks passed the solid lines of Major General William Dorsey Pender's division. As you all recall, Pender's division of A.P. Hill's Corps had followed Heath's men up the Chambersburg Pike to Gettysburg that morning and now Pender's fresh troops were ready to pick up the fight where Heath's exhausted men had left off.
1: Just as Harry Heath had driven the Federals off McPherson's Ridge, here south of the Chambersburg Pike, now it was up to Dorsey Pender to drive them off Seminary Ridge. Pender chose Colonel Alfred Scales, North Carolinians, and Brigadier General Abner Perrin's South Carolinians for the job. Perrin had been a company commander at Fredericksburg, a regimental commander at Chancellorsville, and now was leading a brigade for the first time. Scales, too, was a first-time brigade commander. Scales' North Carolinians were on the left, closest to the Chambersburg Pike, while Perrin's South Carolinians were on the right.
0: Moving east off Hur's Ridge, Pender's line crossed Willoughby Run, and portions of the formation passed through the weary and bloodied rebel soldiers of Pettigrew's brigade, most of whom Abner Perrin would later recall were so exhausted they, quote, could scarcely raise a cheer for us, end quote. An officer in Perrin's brigade said, quote, The field was thick with wounded hurrying to the rear and the ground was gray with dead and disabled.
1: Pender's attack plan was simple as could be. While he held back one brigade, Edward Thomas's, in reserve, and another, James Lane's, was sent to the right, that is to the south, to counter the Union cavalry still operating there along the Fairfield Road, Perrin's and Scales brigades were to cross the shallow valley between McPherson's Ridge and Seminary Ridge in a rush, without stopping to fire, and close with the Yankees, who presumably were in no better condition than Pettigrew's wearied and bloodied men. But like many plans at the Battle of Gettysburg, this one lasted only until the shooting started. The steady orderly sergeant moving calmly from gun to gun, now and then changing men about as one after another was hit and fell, stooping over a wounded man to help him or aiding another to stagger to the rear. The very guns became things of life, not implements but comrades. Every man was doing the work of two or three. Up and down the line, men reeling and falling. Splinters flying from wheels and axles where bullets hit. In rear, horses tearing and plunging, mad with wounds or terror, drivers yelling. Shells bursting, shots shrieking overhead, howling about our ears, or throwing up great clouds of dust where they struck. The musketry crashing on three sides of us, bullets hissing, humming, and whistling everywhere, Cannon roaring, smoke, dust, splinters, blood, wreck, and carnage indescribable. But the brass guns of old Battery B still bellowed, and not a man or boy flinched or faltered. Every man's shirt soaked with sweat, and many of them sopped with blood from wounds not severe enough to make such bulldogs let go. Bareheaded, sleeves rolled up, faces blackened. Out in front of us, an undulating field, filled almost as far as the eye could reach with a long, low, gray line creeping toward us, fairly fringed with flame. Private Augustus Buell, Battery B, 4th United States Light Artillery.
0: On the instant Colonel Perrin spurred his horse to the front and led the charge. Filled with admiration for such courage as defied the whole fire of the enemy, and naturally drawn to his horse, his uniform, and his flashing sword, the whole brigade followed with a shout that was itself half a victory. The Federal infantry and artillery opened on us with a repetition of the fire that had already slaughtered a brigade. This was particularly heavy on the two right regiments, for at that point the enemy were protected by a stone fence. Still, there was no giving back on our part. The line passed on, many of the men throwing away their knapsacks and blankets to keep up. Struggling and panting, but cheering and closing up, they went through the shell, through the minie balls, heeding neither the dead who sank down by their sides— nor the fire from the front which killed them, until they threw themselves desperately on the line of Federals. The enemy, however, did not fly readily. They fought obstinately everywhere, and particularly opposite our right. In fact, it was not possible to, to dislodge them from that point until, having broken the portion of their line opposed to our left, we threw an enfilade fire along the wall." They then gave back at all points. Lieutenant J.F.J. Caldwell, 1st South Carolina Volunteers, Parents Brigade.
1: On Seminary Ridge, waiting for the Confederates, were the survivors of Stone's Brigade, the Iron Brigade, and Biddle's Brigade, along with a few regiments from Cutler's Brigade, and, unfortunately for the rebels, all were still prepared to fight it out. But what made this new Federal defensive line deadly was the guns positioned here by 1st Corps Artillery Chief Colonel Charles Wainwright.
0: Wainwright would later claim that his decision to build a formidable gun line on Seminary Ridge was the result of a mistake. You see, Otis Howard sent a message to Wainwright saying that Cemetery Hill was to be held, quote-unquote, at all hazards. But the German staff officer who delivered the verbal message from Howard's headquarters spoke only broken English, and Wainwright, who knew nothing of any cemetery, assumed that what was meant was the hill or ridge there at the Lutheran Seminary. Wainwright later said, quote, "...I thought it was the seminary hill we were to hold. I had therefore strung my batteries out on it as well as I could. Thus, there were 18 pieces on a frontage of not over 200 yards."
1: As Dorsey Pender's two brigades of fresh Confederates, close to 3,000 strong, advanced to the attack, Perrin and Scales were supposed to move together, but no sooner had they started than Perrin's brigade, on the right, encountered trouble. His right, or southern flank, came under such intense fire from Gamble's Union horsemen that Perrin's advance ground to a halt. As we mentioned just a moment ago, Pender had assigned another of his brigades, Lane's Brigade, to confront the Federal troopers positioned down by the Fairfield Road. But Lane's men were late getting organized, so the Union cavalry were free to fire up into the flank of Perrin's advancing troops, with the result that his South Carolinians were brought to a halt. That meant that until Perrin could get his men in motion again, Scales North Carolinians were forced to advance alone.
0: Moving forward alone, Scales North Carolinians advanced into a wall of iron and lead as every federal musket and gun on Seminary Ridge was turned upon them. Wainwright's massed guns, positioned only five yards apart instead of the Regulation 15, laid down a devastating barrage firing loads of canister so that each discharge was like the blast of a giant shotgun smashing into the Confederate ranks.
1: A section commander in one of the Federal batteries had an oblique or enfilating angle on the attackers with his three-inch ordnance rifles, and Wainwright wrote that, quote, "...his round shot, together with the canister poured in from all the other guns," was cutting great gaps in the front line of the enemy. On the receiving end of the Union artillery fire, a soldier in the 38th North Carolina noted simply that, quote, every discharge made a sad loss in the line.
0: The Federal musketry also did fearsome damage to the attackers. Colonel William Robinson of the Iron Brigade's 7th Wisconsin wrote that, quote, When they were within easy range, the order was given, and their ranks went down like grass before the scythe.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
3: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The attack of Scales North Carolinians stalled in the bottom of the shallow valley in front of Seminary Ridge. There, hundreds of men went down, including Alfred Scales, who was severely wounded in the leg. It's estimated that in its advance here on July 1st, Scales Brigade lost 900 of the 1,400 men it carried into the fight that afternoon. To give just one example of the terrible losses the brigade suffered, of the 180 soldiers in the 13th North Carolina, 150 were killed or wounded in the attack on Seminary Ridge.
0: However, while scalesmen held their ground, getting shot to pieces at the north end of the Confederate line, Abner Perrin, just to the south, had finally got his troops moving again. Perrin would lose around 600 of his 1,500 men in the next 20 minutes, but nevertheless it would be his South Carolinians who broke the federal line here on Seminary Ridge.
1: Perrin led the attack on horseback, telling his men to charge directly forward and not to stop to fire until ordered to do so. As the Federals turned their attention to this new threat, the South Carolinians were greeted by the same destructive storm of iron and lead that had stopped Scales' advance a few minutes earlier. The color bearers of all four rebel regiments here were killed almost immediately. Perrin would later describe it as, quote, the most destructive fire of musketry I have ever been exposed to.
0: As Perrin's men charged forward, his left two regiments, the 14th and 1st South Carolina, were blasted by that destructive enemy fire, and their advance stalled before the Federal's improvised rail fence breastworks. Meanwhile, the two right regiments, the 12th and 13th South Carolina, were still taking enough sharp and rapid carbine fire from the Union cavalrymen down on the flank, that Perrin ordered them to turn their advance in that direction.
1: With his attack teetering on the brink of failure, Perrin spotted what seemed to be a weak spot in the left end of the federal line between Biddle's left-hand regiment, the 121st Pennsylvania, and Gamble's flank guard of Union cavalrymen. It was a gap of perhaps 50 yards, but it was enough and Perrin himself led the desperate charge of the 1st South Carolina into it. As the Confederates surged forward into the gap and around the exposed southern end of the Federal's rail fence barricade, the suddenly flanked Yankee line started to unravel from left to right, regiment by regiment.
0: Outflanked and with the enemy pressure now too great to withstand any longer south of the Chambersburg Pike. Abner Doubleday gave the order for the 1st Corps to withdraw and fall back to Cemetery Hill. As Stephen Sears points out in his book on Gettysburg, the orderliness of the retreat seemed to depend on proximity to the enemy. The 121st Pennsylvania, caught point-blank by the flanking maneuver of Perrin's South Carolinians, went back, quote, without any semblance of order, end quote. But then the Iron Brigade and Stone's regiments generally fell back toward town under some semblance of control, although this wasn't easily done, with the surging rebels close on their heels.
1: By the time First Corps artillery chief Charles Wainwright learned of the retreat order, most of the federal infantry were already gone from Seminary Ridge. Better late than never, Wainwright directed his batteries to limber up and start to withdraw. However, he would not allow them to trot, but would only allow them to proceed toward town at a walk, for fear that a faster retreat would panic the friendly Union infantry crowding in with them on the Chambersburg Pike. Wainwright later admitted to his diary, As I sat on the hill watching my pieces file past, and cautioning each one not to trot, there was not a doubt in my mind but that I should go to Richmond. Each minute I expected to hear the order to surrender.
0: Suddenly, though, rebel skirmishers took the road under fire, scattering the Federal infantry and giving Wainwright a clear path. Trot! Gallop! he shouted, and his artillerymen dashed with their pieces toward safety. In the end, Wainwright lost three caissons and one three-inch rifle, which was abandoned when the horses pulling it were shot down. Wainwright was crestfallen when he heard of its loss, but then added philosophically, quote, The more I think of it, the more I wonder that we got off at all.
1: We heard firing all around the house, over the porch, where a few minutes before we had been handing out water, and over the cellar doors. I heard a voice say, Shoot that fellow going over the fence. The order was obeyed, and a shot rang out just by the cellar window. There were several small windows in the walls, and their light cast shadows on the opposite wall of men rushing back and forth. Those shadows filled us all with horror. There was more and more shooting until the sound was one continuous racket, I peeped out one of the windows just in time to see a cannon unlimbered and fired down the street. What a noise it made, and how the dust did fly! After a time, the noise grew less and less, and farther and farther away. We were all waiting to see what would happen next, when suddenly the outer cellar doors were pulled open, and five Confederate soldiers jumped down among us. We thought our last day had come. Some of the women cried, while others, with hands clasped, stood rooted to the spot with fear. Father stepped forward and asked them what they wanted and begged them not to harm his people. One fellow, with a red face covered with freckles and very red hair, dirty and sweaty, with a gun in his hand, said, "'We are looking for Union soldiers.' "'There are none here,' Father answered." but the soldier said he would have to search and that we could go upstairs as the danger was over for a time. Albertus McCreary, resident of Gettysburg.
0: A strange and awful spectacle followed at four o'clock in the afternoon. Overwhelmed, beaten, and completely routed, the Federal soldiers fled back through town in wild disorder. There were 2,500 men made prisoners in the streets before our eyes. Our family now took to the cellar, where a window afforded a partial view. As I stared from the window, I saw a Union soldier running, his breath coming in gasps, a group of Confederates almost upon him. He was in full flight, not turning or even thinking of resistance. But he was not surrendering either, shoot him shoot him yelled a pursuer a rifle cracked and the fugitive fell dead at our door there came a lull in the stream of runners and their hunters then came a thunderous pounding upon our door by fists and boots i ran upstairs One of our own Pennsylvania bucktails named Burlingame, wounded in the leg, was there, supported by a group of his comrades who would not desert him and demanded shelter. We took him in with two of the others who said they would stay with him. Half an hour later, a detail of Confederate soldiers arrived and insisted on searching the house. It was impossible to conceal the wounded man. They found him in father's study. His comrades they ferreted out of the cellar. They took those with them as prisoners, but Burlingame they allowed to remain with us because of his wounds. By five o'clock that Wednesday afternoon, Gettysburg was fully in the enemy's possession. Dole's brigade of Rose division in Ewell's corps quartered itself in our immediate neighborhood. They tore down all our fences to let the troops pass readily but the harshest critic would find it difficult to find fault with their conduct. They were Georgians, all gentlemanly, courteous, and considerate of the townspeople, as it was possible for men in their position to be. Henry Jacobs, resident of Gettysburg
1: By around half past four that afternoon, nine long hours after Marcellus Jones fired the battle's first shot, and after a determined stand north and west of Gettysburg, the Federal First and Eleventh Corps lines had finally collapsed, overwhelmed by the weight of superior numbers. The streets of the town were now filled with fleeing Union soldiers. In a few cases the retreat took on all the appearances of a rout with some men overcome with panic. In other cases, the retreat was more orderly.
0: Despite the best efforts of some officers, many regiments quickly lost cohesion and the mass of retreating federal troops became a jumbled mass in the streets and narrow alleys of Gettysburg. A Pennsylvanian in Stone's brigade candidly admitted that they retreated, without semblance of military order, with every man for himself, and the Rebs take the hindmost.
1: With Confederates entering town hot on their heels, the fleeing Union soldiers turned blind corners, hopped over fences, and trampled gardens underfoot as they made their way toward Cemetery Hill. Hundreds, unable to get away, were rounded up and captured, while in the town square, which in Gettysburg was called the Diamond, the soldiers of the 1st South Carolina of Perrin's Brigade triumphantly raised the Confederate banner up the town's flagpole as Dorsey Pender reined up beside them and congratulated them on what he proclaimed to be a, quote, glorious day's work.
0: The citizens of the town caught up in the whirlwind of the retreat, mostly clustered in their basements, doing their best to ride out the storm. Other residents, more curious than fearful, watched the drama unfold from upstairs windows, including one woman who later famously wrote that the crowd of retreating Union soldiers beneath her window was so thick that she believed she could have walked from one side of the street to the other just by stepping on the heads of the men.
1: A few kind-hearted souls braved the danger of stray shots to offer drinks of water to the retreating Union soldiers. Rufus Dawes remembered an old man who met the retreating 6th Wisconsin with two buckets of water. To the soldiers who, according to Dawes, quote, were almost prostrated with overexertion and heat, it was a gift of, quote, inestimable value.
0: A member of the 76th New York recalled a young woman who stood along the street with a bucket of cold well water at her side and a cup in each hand, ladling out drinks to the soldiers as fast as she could while tears ran down her face.
1: Years after the fighting had ended, both the Eleventh Corps' Carl Schurz and the First Corps' Abner Doubleday would steadfastly deny that their respective commands had succumbed to widespread panic. Schurz's only concession was, quote, that there were a good many stragglers hurrying to the rear in a disorderly fashion, as is always the case after a hot fight, will not be denied, end quote. While Doubleday swore, quote, the 1st Corps was broken and defeated, but not dismayed. There were but few left, but they showed the true spirit of soldiers. End quote. Epitomizing what Doubleday was talking about, and typical of the officers who strove to keep their commands together, was the 14th Brooklyn's Colonel Edward Fowler, who gave the order Fall back, boys, but do not make a run of it.
0: Chased from town, the retreating Union soldiers at last arrived at their designated rallying point, the high ground of Cemetery Hill where, for the moment, chaos reigned. Rufus Dawes recalled that as he looked around, he saw nothing but a, quote, confused rabble of disorganized regiments of infantry and crippled batteries.
1: The only fresh, organized force on Cemetery Hill was Colonel Orland Smith's brigade of Von Steinwehr's division, which had waited here in reserve for most of the day. Everywhere, Union officers of all ranks worked feverishly to rally the troops and restore order. Notable among them was Otis Howard, who calmly moved about, getting the survivors into position, ready to repel any Confederate assault on the hill. The weary remnants of regiments filed into their assigned positions, and the men sagged to the ground in exhaustion. Ordnance officers issued new supplies of ammunition and the men filled their cartridge boxes.
0: As the infantry settled into position, Charles Wainwright and Major Thomas Osborne, commanding the artillery of the 1st and 11th Corps, established a formidable line of guns on the hilltop, wheeling no fewer than 43 cannon into position, ready to punish any Confederate force that might make an effort to storm the key piece of high ground.
1: Although Otis Howard, in his calm and collected manner, had already rallied many of the men on Cemetery Hill, the soldiers' spirits were especially lifted when they spotted the inspiring figure of Winfield Scott Hancock, who arrived sometime after 4.30 p.m. As you guys will recall, at midday, after learning of Reynolds' death, George Meade, at Army headquarters at Tawny had dispatched Hancock to Gettysburg. His arrival created an awkward situation since Howard outranked him, but Meade's order placed Hancock in command over him. At any rate, Hancock's arrival on Cemetery Hill seems like a good point to bring this episode to a close, and we'll save the discussion about the awkward situation with Howard for the next show, and we'll also use the next show to look at what was going on over on the Confederate side after they chased the Federals through the streets of Gettysburg and taken possession of the town.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is actually a back issue of the late, great Blue and Gray magazine. Back in 2014, Volume 30, Issue Number 3, was a Gettysburg special issue looking at the town fight.
1: Besides the narrative devoted to the town fight, there are a remarkable series of maps in this issue that present Gettysburg as it appeared in July 1863, showing every building, home, and business, along with the names of occupants, tenants, and owners. It's really an amazing resource, and we can't recommend it highly enough. So that's Blue and Gray Magazine, Volume 30, Issue Number 3, from back in 2014.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: As we wrap up this show, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who went over to Patreon this past week to sign up to support the podcast. A big thank you to Tracy, Sam, and Mark.
0: And thank you to Stephen W. and Matt B. for their donations.
1: Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, A History Podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll continue looking at the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.